Hello, I'm Ellie Warden. Welcome to the Heart to Mind Transformation Station, sharing stories related to the importance of building legacies that lead to greater health and wealth within your family. Come on, get on board. First of all, we want to welcome everyone to the behind the scenes of the Heart to Mind Legacy Transformation Station podcast. And we're behind the scenes because we actually have a very special guest with a very special story that we wanted to continue to share with you. But we wanted to let you see what goes on behind the scenes with this um, with our guest. But first, let me uh, welcome my co-host, Jerome Smart. And Jerome, we talked about this situation this weekend surrounding our guest legacy and the travesty of the ruling that she's going to share with us. I look forward to having a conversation with Dr. Kiris about what's going on with the uh, Mount Pelier Foundation Board and with the Mount Pelier Descendants uh, Committee. You know, it's an interesting turn of events, and I'd like to get as much information as I can about why it occurred, who's supporting it, who's kind of spearheading this whole change in direction and what your intentions are to try to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, for those who are just tuning in, who may not be familiar with Dr. Betty Kears, let me just give you a background on her. She's a native of Tucson. She grew up in Northern California. She's got her BA in genetics from the university of California at Berkeley. PhD in biology from New York University, and she has her MD from Case Western University. She's done all the beautiful family things that you would expect a woman like her to do. And two weeks ago, she was our guest and she absolutely wowed us. And so we wanted to have her right back on again, but little did we realize it was going to be so soon and with such astonishing news. Well, thank you, Ellie and Jerome, for having me back. I enjoyed our time together last time, and I'm ready to do it again. Right. Well, you know, they say time flies when you're having fun. It flew last time around. I expect it's probably going to go faster this time. Absolutely. There's a lot going on, a very complicated, emotionally wrenching story, at least for me. So I want to start by setting the scene. What you see on the screen behind me is Montpelier, which is located just about two hours south of of Washington, D.C., in a really beautiful area of Virginia called the Piedmont area. And Montpelier was home to James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, and also called the author of the Constitution. But it wasn't just his home. It was home to generations of enslaved people, totaling about about 300 and going back as far as 1732, when President Madison's um, grandfather, Ambrose, first arrived there with his son and, and two daughters. But Even though it's a beautiful area, it's also a prison to those 300 people. And the question I have, and many people have, is who should tell the story of those people? And for decades, those people's story has been told by others who sort of want to protect the image of the founding fathers. But who should really tell the story 
of that shares the memories and the feelings of the descendants of those enslaved people. So the argument is, or at least my part of the argument is, that we should tell it, those of us who are the descendants, not those who were trying to protect Madison's image or Jefferson's image or Monroe's image or Washington's image, we should tell our own story. In 2018, at Montpelier, a group of museum specialists, historians, descendants, scholars from throughout the country met at Montpelier and came up with a rubric. And I'm actually going to read this rubric because it's long and I want to get it right because the rubric says what the intention is to to enable the descendants to tell their own stories. So the rubric is called the rubric of best practices of descendants engagement in the interpretation of slavery at museum and historic sites. So that tells the goal. And Montpelier rejoiced in the development of of this rubric, which is sort of um, a self-assessment tool to make sure that all of these sites are moving in the right direction. But there has been pushback at Montpelier. After celebrating the rubric and initially voting to make bylaw changes that would enable the rubric to go into action at Montpelier, there began to be pushback almost immediately. So do you want to interrupt me here and ask? I want to know first, who crafted the rubric? Well, there was a number of uh, uh, scholars. I don't. I know one of them was Dr. Michael Blakey, who is um, an anthropologist, very famous man. Yeah. And uh, another is uh, Christian Cox, who is now um, at the First Amendment Museum in Maine, but who was at Montpelier. But there were a number of of scholars from different museums and historic sites, and there were also some uh, descendants, descendants of enslaved people as well. I don't know how many, but it was a a pretty large group that came up with this standard of self-assessment tool. And thank you for answering that question. You answered it very directly. I think I need to uh, be a little bit. I wanted to know generally what entities. I know that the the Montpelier is owned by the National National Trust for Historic Preservation. Yes. And I was trying to get a feel of what parties, what entities were involved in drafting this rubric. Because ultimately, when you have buy-in and support from all of the parties that are involved and engaged, not only at Montpelier, but in other structures around the country, it adds weight to it that makes it seem a little bit more difficult to just back away from it uh, so easily or so quickly. Well, this was sponsored and uh, strongly supported by the National Trust of Historic Preservation. But 
there were people from all over the country representing different museums and different historic sites. So it carried weight, bottom line. It, carried, it carries weight and, and expectation. Exactly. A lot of expectations. And everybody was just so proud of it because it was the right thing to do. And, you know, also, Dr. Betty, one of the things that was very interesting as we were preparing for this interview is that you continue to stress that this isn't just a fight for your family's legacy. This is a fight for the hundreds of families throughout the region that are faced with this exact same type of, of exclusion. Is that correct? I was talking about the formation of the Montpelier Descendants Committee because it was started at Montpelier, but it represents descendants of enslaved people throughout a pretty wide range. It's about 840 square miles, you know, I'm, I may not be that accurate, but, but just roughly, that goes as far north as Fredericksburg and as far south as Richmond and encompasses such prominent former plantation as uh, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. And there are many members and every descendant has been invited. This is an inclusive democratically formed organization, you know, to represent the descendants of enslaved people. So give us a rundown on what has occurred and what actions need to be taken in support of your efforts. Well, what happened was that in June of last year, after much wrangling, (laughs) it, it, it was not easy. The Board of Directors of the Montpelier Foundation agreed to institute bylaw changes that would put the rubric into action and would give the Montpelier Descendants Committee, which we call the MDC, equal standing in every way with the foundation board. It was to be a 50-50 parity. So they weren't excited about it. But realizing the historic and social importance of it, they finally agreed to do it. But almost immediately, they began to back away. The first step that shows they're trying to undo what they had already had just agreed to do was that there was equal numbers on, of board representatives and MDC representatives on the governance committee to bring in new board members so that there would be structural parity on the board. And I understand there are 16 board members. So we're looking at having eight members of the MDC as well as eight members of the MPF. Well, see, it begins to get complicated. We're actually going to expand the number to, to 26, but currently there are 16. Three represent the MDC and the rest, including one new Black board member, though who represents the foundation, it kind of, when they, the numbers were diluted by bringing on these extra people. 
But I think when you kind of need to, to back up a, a little bit, because this is really getting very complicated. Okay. Okay. So what I was talking about was actually the governance committee. Okay. Okay. And the role of the governance committee was to bring in more MDC nominated people. And there, so there were four members of that board. I think there were six members of that board, three from the foundation and three from the MDC. But what happened was that the board, the foundation's members ejected the MDC members. Okay. And when they did that, they did two things. One is that they elected two of their own people, one of whom was in open objection to the very existence of the MDC. And, you know, she is a Black person, but she is openly resistant to our existence. And the other thing that the governance committee did, those who were left after the MDC representatives were kicked off, refused to vote on two of MDC's nominated candidates. So I hear a protection of his story. And of course, we all know history is spelled his story. So it's a um, protection of the story and a whitewashing of the history of slavery from Mount Pelier, as well as in parts of Virginia and throughout the region. Yeah. Montpelier has become sort of the focal point of this movement to try to allow descendants of enslaved people to speak for themselves. Other institutions, museums, the general public is looking at Montpelier to see how this is going to work. And it's not working well at all. After agreeing to change the bylaws, structural parity is really the goal of this, this whole effort, so that there is equal representation in every operation of Montpelier. Is there a monetary gain that is being resisted? Because, you know, whenever there's any kind of a, an argument, I mean, you, you start to kind of wear down where is the real argument you know, is it that it is just straight recognition? Is it control? Are there funds available that somebody is not going to get or will get? How do we really, you know, pare this down? Well, you know, I think the real issue was power. Yes, there's money involved. Right. I think that the real issue is not wanting to share control, particularly with a group of Black people. But you have done the research the thing is, is that it's not like you're coming up shorthanded, empty handed. You're coming up with documentation, with research, with logic, with a call for humanity that does not seem to be willingly met by the opposition. What and I know this is this is somewhat a hypothetical, but what do you really feel this group needs to hear in order to make it change its mind and to begin to work with the descendants? Well, they need to hear that we can and should tell our own story, that they should not be the ones to tell the story on our behalf. They should not have this kind of paternalistic mm-hmm. attitude of who we are and what should be said about us. The stories are not the same. You know, even when you have the greatest of empathy, 
to someone else's plight. You don't live their story 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And the bottom line is you ultimately are not the best equipped person to share the strength of their story as well as the pain in their story. And it is a very power-based decision to keep control of that history. You know, it's interesting that just this um, past week that the, the royal couple was on their Caribbean tour. And I read an article this weekend that said uh, the, the headlines were when royal tours fail. And it was the whole concept of the royals going over and thinking, you know, OK, we're smiling, we're waving, we're dancing, we're eating food. And so therefore all is well. But when they got to Jamaica, they found that there was a very, very different story. And people were asking for more than just uh, let's just show what's good for the for the world to see. I see this exact same type of thing occurring here. And it's got to be very painful for the other side as well. Because again, like you said, they're relinquishing, they're relinquishing control. And truth is now being played into. We've got to come up with something to say to them to make them understand that the truth is the truth. The truth is the truth, but they don't want to hear the whole truth story. You know, there's a term that said that's good slave owner or good master. Well, there is no such thing. That's right. Because owning people is wrong. Yes. Maybe you didn't beat them. Maybe you didn't starve them, but you owned them. You failed to recognize their humanity and all that they have contributed, not just to you, James Madison or Tom right. as free labor, as as free labor, but also to this country. There's no way this country would have been what it is, you know, as powerful as it is about without the millions of enslaved people who, who did the work. Slavery is the original sin of the United States of America, period. And we have seen that history denied in numerous ways, including the current assault on critical race theory. Critical race theory in reality is about telling the truth of the impact of race on virtually every power and systematic decision uh, since the birth of the United States. That has been reshaped in a lot of different ways because the heinous existence of slavery and of owning another person is real. And history does not really want to bring that out and have it in an everyday existence. And uh, the greatness of an estate such as Mount Pelia or any of the other great estates in that area of the country. And Montpelier is particularly important. Because this is where James Madison formulated the ideas that became the foundation for the mm-hmm. Constitution, which is the blueprint of, the, of this country. And, you know, we see the effects of that Constitution um, on American life today, not just African-American life, but just life in this country for everyone. Absolutely. How do people get more involved How do we take this fight, this concern beyond our generation, you know, so that younger generations look at it and see the importance of getting involved today in order to create the family legacies that will exist, you know, generations down the road? How do we get that message out? Well, you know, first of all, we need to empower our young people 
and teach them that they have some great genetics. They have a great legacy. They come from remarkable people who had the, the strength and a sense of their own humanity, of the ability to say, I am. They recognized that they were human beings and they had hopes and dreams. And so I think that when young people recognize that they have those same qualities, they can look at themselves and say, I am. Well, we want to thank you very much. And Jerome, I don't know about you, but this story points out the importance of families fighting to be recognized as a part of the fabric of the American history. And how many of us are allowing our family history to just kind of be washed away and diluted without realizing that the story is there, it's real, and we need to get more involved with it. Well, reality is, uh, prior to talking to Dr. Kirst the first time and getting her profile and getting some familiarity with her, uh, with her publications and her book and her work, I know that this story exists all around the country, obviously, uh, predominantly through the South. It's a very similar story. But I did not know as much about your story or the details of how it's really being denied, rejected, held down, not brought to light. And I want to thank you for enlightening me a little bit more about your story in particular, but also, again, challenging me to become more of a student and gaining more knowledge about our history and some of the struggles that we've had along the way and how we can do something now to make sure that our children and grandchildren and legacies are told and a part of this fabric of American history. Well, first of all, we, could, we need to encourage everyone to get a copy of your book, The Other Madisons, the Lost History of a President's Black Family that's available on Amazon. And then also to follow up more on the story at culturalheritagepartners.com. Dr. Kirsch, you were saying something? You said something to the effect that this story is more predominant in the South. Well, I disagree. Okay. It is throughout the country. It takes on different faces. But it is, it is everywhere. Yeah, I grew up in a very liberal community in Northern California, and it was right there. Yeah. Mm. And I was, when I said to the South, I was speaking specifically of that plantation environment, but definitely not the history of the things that we have dealt with as people of color in this country, because that story is everywhere, free or slave, you know, enslaved. That story is everywhere. And actually, so we have you. to look at the South as being anything south of the Canadian border. Uh, oh, that is funny. <laughs> there True. There you go. And then even there, there's a story there because I've been to Ontario and there's a whole other story even in Canada that would uh, would blow your mind. But yeah. uh, we certainly appreciate you coming back on again, Dr. Kears, and sharing this information. We're going to follow up with this. We want people to follow up with it. And let's see if we can institute a change just through popular demand, you know, of people just saying, let's do the right thing. Let's do the right thing. And hopefully the right people will hear it. Your final word, Dr. Kears. 
Well, please take a look at the Washington Post article um, about this issue. And please go to the Montpelier Descendants Committee Facebook and follow us. That's a great ending to a wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Jerome. Thank you for your input today. I see that you've really gotten into this subject matter. And I like that. Thank um, you, Ellen. Yep. And to all of our thank listeners, you, we want to just let you know that we're wrapping it up for today and we're thanking everyone for listening. The podcast can be heard on Wednesday on Captivate FM, on Apple and Google um, and Spotify and Player FM. We're everywhere. We want you to be there with us as well. Take care and we will talk to you again next week. This has been the Heart to Mind Transformation Station. I hope you enjoyed today's program. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tune in again next week.